I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, I'm joined by my colleague, John Michael Seibler. Welcome back. Oh, thank you, Elizabeth. So the court issued its last orders list until the justices return in mid-February, and they re- released one opinion. So, J.M., what was that one opinion about? That's right. The court decided health and health care against Teva Pharmaceuticals. It was a unanimous opinion by Justice Thomas involving patent infringement. Nothing too exciting. You know, Justice Thomas does love those federal circuit cases, uh, a lot of patent patent stuff. It seems like he, he writes the majority a lot of times there. So I'm glad, God love him, I'm glad somebody on the Supreme Court likes that stuff. Uh, the court also granted cert in one new case, which uh, people are pretty excited about. It's New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus the city of New York. So the issue there is whether New York City's ban on transporting a licensed, locked, and unloaded handgun to a home or shooting range outside city limits is consistent with the Second Amendment. The license authorizes a resident to possess the handgun in his or her home and to transport it to or from one of the city's seven gun ranges. But otherwise, New York City has effectively stripped residents of the right to remove their handgun for almost any other reason, regardless of how safely it is stored. So in theory, you couldn't even take your handgun with you if you move because there's no lawful method to transport it. So this is the first major Second Amendment case that the court will hear since its landmark decisions in Heller in 2008 and McDonald in 2010. And of course, those cases established that the Constitution protects an individual right to keep and bear arms and that this right applies against the states as well as the federal government. So stay tuned for that case. People are pretty excited about it. And in other news in the transgender military service cases, on Tuesday, the court voted five to four to stay lower courts injunctions. Barring implementation of the so-called Mattis policy, policy put in place by former Secretary of Defense Mattis, and it unanimously refused the administration's request to grant review now before the lower courts rule. And the court removed from its argument calendar for February the census citizenship question case. Uh, So the the SG uh, filed a letter with the court saying that they uh, the government plans to to file a cert before judgment petition because the lower court has not yet heard the case. Uh, but there's a bit of a time crunch here because the census forms are due to the printers by the end of June, and the government is concerned that they don't have time to wait for the lower court to hear and rule on the case and then for the Supreme Court to rule. Uh, so they're, they're hoping to bypass the appeals court altogether. The court also granted divided argument time in the Bladensburg Cross case, and it's going to be a bit of a crowded podium on the petitioner's side. It's, uh, it's going to be three against one. So we have Neil Katyal representing the Maryland State Commission, Mike Carvin representing the American Legion, and Principal Deputy Solicitor General Jeff Wall on behalf of the federal government. All three will be arguing on behalf of the cross. And for the other side, the American Humanist Association's lawyer, Monica Miller, will get an extra five minutes, which only seems fair when it's three against one. But next up, we'll talk with John Birch. John Birch is an appellate litigator extraordinaire who splits his time between a solo practice and being VP of Appellate Advocacy for Alliance Defending Freedom. John, welcome to SCOTUS 101. Thank you so much for having me. So first up, I want to get your thoughts on the court's recent denial of, of review in Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. 
So uh, by way of background for our listeners, this is a case brought by a California high school football coach, uh, Joe Kennedy, who was disciplined for kneeling and praying at the field after games. He asked the court to rule on whether public school teachers retain any First Amendment rights at work and in the general presence of students. So there, Justice Alito wrote a statement concurring in the denial, which Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh joined. Alito said there were some factual questions that had not been resolved, but he believes the underlying issue is one that may be worth revisiting in a future case. So then at the end of this concurrence, Alito pointed out that Coach Kennedy had raised a free speech claim instead of a free exercise of religion claim, and that this could be due to the court's decision in Employment Division versus Smith, where the court, quote, drastically cut back on the protection provided by the free exercise clause. So, John, what do you make of this? Well, to me, it sure looks like an invitation from Justice Alito and three other justices to have the court revisit the Smith decision. Uh, for those of your listeners who aren't familiar with Employment Division versus Smith, uh, that was the case that resulted in our Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RIFRA, being passed by Congress. And that is because the court took such a narrow view of the free exercise clause that it was virtually unprotective of any religious believer. Uh, the court said that if a law was facially neutral, unless it was passed with some kind of obvious discriminatory animus towards religion, uh, that everybody had to comply with it. Uh, And that really has the effect of negating the free exercise clause. So RIFRA, which at the time was supported by overwhelming majorities in Congress and signed by President Clinton, was supposed to restore some of that freedom. Uh, It's been problematic in two respects. One, uh, some lower courts have been unwilling to give RIFRA the full extent of the protection that it's supposed to have. And two, the Supreme Court separately held that RIFRA does not apply to states, only to federal government actions. Uh, So if they're serious about this and Smith was reexamined and then overruled, it would really do a great deal to restore religious liberty in this country. Well, we'll definitely be keeping an eye out for, for cases there. Yeah, there were also a number of cases that the court has not acted on. And at this point, the court isn't likely to grant additional cases that will hear this term. So the fate of several high-profile cases remains up in the air, including the challenge to the Trump administration's plans to shut down the DACA program, several cases involving whether the ban on sex discrimination in employment covers LGBT status, and a case challenging Indiana's ban on discriminatory discriminatory abortions, those based on an unborn baby's sex, race, or disability. So, John, can you walk us through the employment discrimination cases? The first of those petitions has been pending, I think, since September. Uh, do you think we're, we're simply waiting on one of the justices to write a dissent from denial of cert at this point? Well, that's a great question. Um, we, we don't really know whether they're waiting for a dissent or whether they just wanted to push the cases far enough out so that the oral arguments wouldn't take place until this fall. Um, There was some speculation that when the court um, kind of precipitously turned down a case that presented a well-established and mature circuit split involving the defunding of Planned Parenthood in the Medicaid process, um, that they wanted to avoid controversy for the short term. And so it it could be that they just want to wait. Um, Now, one of the reasons that the cases have been pending such a long time, since September, it was necessary to let the um, case involving gender identity in Title VII catch up to the cases involving sexual orientation. So initially, there were two petitions, Zarda and Bostic, which both raised the question whether the, the phrase discrimination based on sex in Title VII 
um, included sexual orientation when Congress enacted that law in 1964. The Harris Funeral Home case, uh, which is one where I'm counsel of record for Alliance Defending Freedom, asked the same question of gender identity, whether when Congress said sex, what they really meant was gender identity back in the 1960s. I think we all know the answer to that question if you're truly following the intent of the folks who drafted Title VII. Um, so once the, the cases caught up to each other, they were able to be considered for the first time in December. The court then pushed all three of them off until January, and now we've had a couple of relists. Um, so whether they're, they're just trying to put some more space between what some people would call controversial decisions and the Kavanaugh confirmation last fall, um, or instead whether we're waiting for dissents, no one really knows. Uh, but we really do need the justices to pick up the pen and, and get busy on this issue, <laughs> notwithstanding any public controversy, because there are massive disagreements among the federal circuits as to the meaning of Title VII. Um, it, it kind of started in the Seventh Circuit um, when they decided to expand the meeting of sex to include sexual orientation. Uh, Judge Posner, just before he retired, wrote a concurrence in that where he explained that what they were doing was judicially updating the statute. And uh, as those of us who believe that statutes and constitutions should be interpreted according to their plain text and uh, accord with the intent of the folks who drafted it and passed it, um, that's just absolutely bizarre that we could have federal circuit courts out there judicially updating <laughs> Title VII protections yeah. so that they could reflect what they think is a good current policy. Um, notably, Congress has considered a number of amendments like this to Title VII and rejected them. Mm -hmm. um, but either way, we really need the court to get involved because it can't be the case that whether you win or lose your employment discrimination case turns on what part of the country you live in. And then let's turn to the Indiana abortion case. So as you mentioned, the court recently turned down a case involving states' attempts to deny Planned Parenthood Medicaid funds, which has nothing to do with abortion. Uh, this was actually your case. And, and Justice Thomas wrote a dissent from denial of, of cert, a scathing dissent from denial of cert. And he accused other justices of shirking their duty simply because Planned Parenthood was involved. So do you think there's simply a lack of interest in, in taking on any case involving abortion right now? Yeah, again, I hope that's not the case. Um, you know, we, we just don't know whether this is waiting for a dissent or whether they just want to put some more space between mm -hmm. taking the, um, the petition up and, and resolving it on the merits and the Kavanaugh hearing from last fall. Um, but I'll, I'll say that this isn't the first scathing opinion that we've seen from Thomas or Alito or Scalia when he was still on the court, accusing other justices of treating abortion cases very differently than almost any other type of case. If you go back to the dissent in Whole Women's Health, um, not only were the dissenters upset with the merits decision, but the majority overlooked all kinds of jurisdictional and prudential rules that would be followed in any other case. And those seem to be left aside solely because it involved abortion. Uh, you know, this is a, another case of great importance. It doesn't have the circuit split aspect the way the Title VII cases do. Um, but to say that you can abort a child simply because of their race, their sex, uh, or the fact that they have a disability, um, I mean, what kind of country are we living in? Again, in any other context, we see people picketing in the streets and protesting if people are discriminated against based on any of those things. Um, so the fact that you can take a baby's life um, based on those same discriminatory factors and Indiana doesn't have the ability to prohibit that is absolutely outrageous. Um, so as with the Title VII cases, I really hope that the, the justices are willing to take this on in the fall.
Well, hopefully we'll see uh, some action when, when the justices come back in February. Yeah, but yes, it's going to be an exciting month. <laughs> <laughs> it will. So turning to your career, you previously served as the Solicitor General of Michigan, and you've argued 11 cases at the United States Supreme Court. What were some of the highlights of your time as Michigan's SG? Um, well, what was really terrific was just the number of opportunities that we had to get up to the U.S. Supreme Court. I was the Solicitor General from the beginning of 2011 to the end of 2013, so roughly three years. And I had eight of my Supreme Court arguments during that time. And the Wall Street Journal uh, noted that it was about 6% of the entire docket. <laughs> so for a state solicitor general, that was just a incredible run. And uh, in yeah. part, it was because the Sixth Circuit was just issuing a number of decisions that were plainly wrong to us under the U.S. Constitution. And we wanted to be aggressive about making sure those decisions were corrected. So what was the most memorable Supreme Court argument for you? I, I bet the Schuette case is a big one. Uh, for listeners, this was a 2014 case upholding Michigan's proposition barring race and sex discrimination in public university admissions. Yeah, that was a wonderful case. Um, it had a, a measure of public publicity that some of the other cases I had argued before that did not. <laughs> I bet. Um, when, <laughs> but when, when I argued it at the Sixth Circuit on Bonk, uh, two of the just, uh, judges that we were counting on to rule in our favor were recused because uh, they had affiliations with public universities in Michigan and therefore couldn't participate in the case. And we lost by one vote, eight to seven. And there were protesters in the courtroom and outside the steps and everywhere else. But as you can imagine, it just got more intense once Shooty got to the U.S. Supreme Court mm -hmm. itself. Um, there were you know, probably well in excess of a thousand protesters who were outside and uh, a very intense argument, uh, but we were happy to prevail. And I guess what I, I'm really happy about in that case is it wasn't uh, a typical 5-4 decision. Justice Kagan was recused because she had looked at the case when she was still Solicitor General of the United States. Uh, so we had eight justices, but Justice Breyer agreed with Michigan's position that it does not violate the Equal Protection Clause of the U.S. Constitution to require equal protection and equal treatment in public university admissions. And so it was a 6-2 decision. And there's not many of those uh, where you can get six justices to coalesce around any position in the affirmative action cases. Uh, so that, that sure was a fun one. Definitely. Yeah. So do you have any pre-argument rituals, maybe a specific meal or perhaps a lucky bow tie? <laughs> yeah, I actually have a couple of pre-argument rituals. Um, number one, I always go to mass the morning of the argument. I've done that for all 11. just feel that it's important for me to, um, to, to talk to God and Jesus Christ before I take on an argument and uh, make sure that I'm approaching it in good faith and honesty and candor and, and all the other things that are required of something like that. Um, I don't have a particular lucky bow tie, uh, but as you may know, I do wear bow ties when I, <laughs> I present all my arguments in the U.S. Supreme Court and otherwise. Uh, and then once I get to the courthouse, uh, like many Supreme Court lawyers, I rub Chief Justice Marshall's foot on the statue there in the basement of the courthouse before I go upstairs. And one after-argument ritual uh, that the Michigan Solicitor General's Office has done for many years, uh, for even more than a decade before I arrived there, um, there's a, an Irish pub not far from 
uh, <laughs> Union Station. Yeah. And they always went there for lunch afterwards. And so we continue that tradition, and I continue <laughs> to go there today, even though I'm no longer in the office. <laughs> well, we're we're located not, not far from the court, and uh, we know that pub well at Heritage. <laughs> uh, so you've also argued before several federal appeals courts and, of course, the Michigan Supreme Court. In fact, you co-authored the Michigan Supreme Court's Guide for Counsel. So do you have a favorite court to appear before? Well, I love appearing in front of the Michigan Supreme Court. Uh, I've argued 28 cases there, 25 just since 2011. Um, So I see them often. And and what I especially appreciate about it, aside from the courtroom and how beautiful it is and how well-prepared the justices are, I have a personal friendship with each one of those justices from being here in Michigan. Um, So that's definitely high on the list. Um, I've recently argued in the Kansas Supreme Court and the Minnesota Supreme Court. Uh, Those were both great opportunities. I love arguing in the federal circuits, especially the sixth, my home. But the U.S. Supreme Court, I think, will always be my favorite court to appear before, just because you've got all the tradition and history when you walk into the building. Uh, The justices are so wonderful to have a discussion with. And because the cases that you're dealing with really will have an impact not just on the parties, uh, not even just on the the population at that time, but on the trajectory of the country on some of the most important policies of our day. Uh, So I think the U.S. Supreme Court will always be second to none for me. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Now you're splitting time between your solo practice and Alliance Defending Freedom. What are some of the cases you have coming up that we should keep an eye on? Uh, Well, one we've already discussed, uh, the Harris Funeral Home case is the Title VII case asking whether discrimination based on sex meant discrimination based on gender identity when it was passed back in the 1960s. And so absolutely keep an eye on that. Um, But we do have several others in the works, which I think are also worth keeping an eye on. One is the Boyertown case, and this involves a school district in Pennsylvania. And the administration decided that it would allow the students to choose which locker rooms and restrooms to use based on the student's own profession or beliefs about their gender. Um, When they made that policy, they did not inform any of the parents or any of the other students. And so the students who are plaintiffs found out for the very first time when they were undressed in the locker room and discovered that the person next to them, also in their underwear, was actually someone of the opposite biological sex. And this notion that your bodily rights to privacy could be wholly dependent on someone else's beliefs about their own sex is a new one in law. And the way the Second Circuit described it was really remarkable. Um, They said that uh, a woman who has a man in the locker room with her who says that he's a woman shouldn't feel uncomfortable about that privacy violation because the man actually is a woman. Um, or vice versa. A woman would actually be a man simply by believing that they're the opposite sex. And of course, we all know from science that um, that's not the case. Uh, Every single cell in the body, um, no matter what kind of hormones you take or what surgery you have, is going to have the the DNA and the hormones that are specific to your biological sex. And so the question there is whether someone's constitutional rights can be taken based on someone else's beliefs. Uh, So we think that's pretty important. We have another Alliance Defending Freedom cert petition in a case called Tree of Life. And Tree of Life is a Christian school, and they've got four campuses in different parts of a city in Ohio. And the the buildings are old and not very useful. And when you have 
a sibling group and they get older, you might have kids in different schools, so it's very inconvenient. So they bought a large building in uh, the downtown area where they could consolidate all the schools and make needed technology upgrades. They hope to actually double the number of students that they served in this Christ-centered education. Uh, but the zoning rules in the city uh, were not fair. If you were a nonprofit, uh, say, bookstore or um, hospital or even a daycare center, then you were allowed to move into the district and operate without any question. But if you were a religious school, then you had to get special permission, and they denied permission. And you can't do that under RELUPA, which is a federal statute that bars unequal treatment of religious organizations and assemblies in zoning matters. And that was another one that Congress passed overwhelmingly, um, actually after the Supreme Court said RIFRA doesn't apply to the states. They were looking for other ways that they could protect religious freedom in the country. And the, the statute has just been misinterpreted by circuit after circuit. Uh, now, eight circuits have looked at the equal terms provision, and there are eight different tests for how to apply it. <laughs> and so we're, we're asking the court to strip back all those decisions, go back to the plain text of the statute, and make sure that religious organizations have equal treatment in zoning. Well, important cases that we will definitely be keeping an eye on. So shifting gears a bit, I saw from your bio that you studied music performance in college. Now, I minored in in music, so I have to ask, what instruments do you play? (laughs) Well, first, it's terrific that you minored. I think everybody should spend some time (laughs) pursuing music. I was a, a clarinet performance major as well as a math major when I was in college. Um, But I also do play a number of other instruments, principally piano. Uh, I I play it at home frequently for our family. We do sing-alongs. I also am the accompanist for our children who all play various musical instruments. Um, I played a little saxophone, a little bit of percussion. um, But uh, mostly what I like to do is just have jam sessions in the basement with our other kids. (laughs) I have a great time with that. That's That's great. So if you hadn't gone into law, do you think you would have pursued a career as a musician? Well, it's funny you should ask that because when I decided to be a music major, I chose to do it not because I wanted to go into music, but because I wanted to be a lawyer. I had read the book One L by Scott Turow when I was a freshman in college. And that's about his first year experience at Harvard Law School. And I immediately said, all right, that right there, that's what I want to do. I want to go to law school. And so I picked the music and math majors because they were two of the things that I most enjoyed. And as it turned out, it was the perfect preparation for my (laughs) law practice because um, you have the logic and rigor of the math, but you've also got the intense hours and preparation and the performance in the music. And so... um, I, I have a hard time imagining myself doing anything else now. If, if you could take away all the physical factors, what I would have loved to have done was play in the NBA. But at <laughs> five foot seven, that wasn't realistic. So I was left with law school, and, and that's been a pretty good course for me. Uh, a, a bow tie wearing NBA player, that, that's something. <laughs> well, one final question that we ask all of our SCOTUS 101 guests if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? You know, that is such a, a difficult question because there are so many justices throughout history that I've admired. Um, but I think if I could could pick, 
I would pick the nine justices on the court right now, <laughs> and I would ask them how best to get more of my cases in front of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Very practical. Very practical answer. <laughs> well, John, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Court trivia. This time I'm going to try to stump Elizabeth. And given the court's cert grant in the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association case, let's make our theme firearms. And more specifically, justices and hunting. Oh, I am so excited. (laughs) So first off, before the Supreme Court's Heller decision, when was the last time that the court had explored the meaning of the Second Amendment? Oh, it was the Miller case in 1939. That's right. It had been a really long time. A really long time. Yeah. Very long. So overdue. Yes. Many would say. Not as long as we've been waiting since Heller and McDonald now. Definitely. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Now on to the justices. Which Supreme Court justice has an Elkhead or had an Elkhead in their office and it was named Leroy? Oh, that was Justice Scalia's Elkhead. But... Justice Gorsuch inherited Leroy. Apparently, the Scalia family, nobody in the family wanted this massive elk head. And, and so the <laughs> Neil Gorsuch got saddled with it when he moved into his chambers. <laughs> that's, that's right. Something like 900 pounds is, the, is the estimated weight. No one wanted it. That's, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, it just fits casually on your wall. <laughs> Why wouldn't you want it? That's right. And it turns out that Gorsuch once joked... Uh, that he and the Leroy have a few things in common, that they're both native Coloradans. <laughs> he said, we both received a rather shocking summons to Washington, and neither of us is ever going to forget Justice Scalia. Oh, that's sweet. Another hunting question. All right. Which justice would routinely go bird hunting with Justice Scalia? Routinely go bird hunting with Justice Scalia. Now, I know Scalia took Justice Kagan out to teach her about hunting, but... Was that bird hunting? That's right. Oh, well, okay. So apparently during her confirmation process, she received a lot of questions about the Second Amendment. Of course, she declined to (laughs) express her views, but she eventually cracked and said, look, uh, if I'm lucky enough to get on the court, I will ask Scalia to take me hunting. He apparently (laughs) got a kick out of it when she told him that story. And so they went uh, and made a habit of going uh, bird hunting together. (laughs) That's great. Now, last question. Which justice refused to go hunting with Scalia? Is it a current justice or it it, it's a current justice? Okay. Hmm. I don't know. I feel like I feel like Justice Ginsburg is too easy of an answer, but I'm going to go with Ginsburg. Oh, you should have trusted your gut. You want to have a second guess? Uh, can I ask if it's a man or a woman? It is a man. Okay. All right. That would have made it a little too easy. A man. Uh, justice Thomas. That's right. And actually, in a lecture here at the Heritage Foundation in 2016, he jokes about uh, saying that he didn't want to go hunting with Scalia, and he thought that it was odd that here he was, a man from the South who didn't want to spend any time in the woods, and <laughs> Justice Scalia, a northerner, who uh, apparently a very avid hunter. Instead, Justice Scalia wants to drive around in his van and park in the uh, parking lots of America, Walmarts of America. That's right. For his, for his free time. <laughs> yeah. Well, good job. Well, thank you. Yeah. It, this was, I, I was a little concerned because I don't, I have to confess I'm not a gun nut. I don't know a ton about hunting, or even though I'm from Kentucky, I don't know much about hunting. But anyway, I think I, I did do pretty pretty well. 
Well, this is the last episode until the court returns in mid-February, so stay tuned for new episodes in a few weeks. And thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a five-star rating if you enjoy listening. And please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101. You can also email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersat. For more information, visit heritage.org. Americans have almost entirely forgotten their history. That's right, and if we want to keep our republic, this needs to change. I'm Jarrett Stepman. And I'm Fred Lucas. We host The Right Side of History a podcast dedicated to restoring informed patriotism and busting the negative narratives about America's past. Hollywood, the media, and academia have failed a generation. We're here to set the record straight on the ideas and people who've made this country great. Subscribe to The Right Side of History on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher today.